Hello all, and welcome to a special bonus edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm Paul, the creator and host of the show, and you guys are the fabulous enthusiasts that tune in each week to make the show what it is. Although I'm on my mid-series break right now, I couldn't let today pass unnoticed, because today, the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is officially one year old. I can't believe that it's passed so quickly. And in that year, the show has grown from strength to strength. I could never have believed its success, and to each and every one of you's help make this, you blow me away. You guys rule. So to mark the first birthday of the show, I wanted to give something to show just how grateful I am. Because I'm mid-series and I'm busy prepping for season 3, plus doing Patreon episodes and whatever, I thought that I'd give one of the past Patreon episodes away for everybody to listen to. I decided on a poll on social media, which I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen because a lot of people voted on it and there was one overall clear winner. Now, it'll be a new case for many people, but for my very kind Patreon supporters, they will, of course, already have heard this one. I must say thanks to my latest Patreon supporters. That's Amy Dogshave Souls, Malora Hullub, Jeremy Andrews, Aurora from Alberta, Sue, Kevin Sheehan, Hannah Foster, Henley, Lisa Jane Robson, Alex Hardin, Susan Adams, the returning Julie Carrillo and Angela Santos who's kindly edited her pledge. Thank you so much guys, there'll be a new bonus Patreon episode available for you on October the 1st. I'm going to continue now with preparation for Season 3 which is just a few short weeks away so just to reiterate, thank you so much again guys, you're all wonderful and I hope for those of you who haven't heard it already that you enjoy the bonus episode. So the case I've selected for this month's episode is a savage and senseless crime and one committed by a perpetrator that I believe was well on the way to being a multiple offender and responsible already for other sex crimes. Please be advised that this bonus episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing, so discretion is advised, please, guys. With that in mind... Please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the earprint murder. When 26-year-old Joseph Scudder returned home from his evening shift at a packer at a local factory, he was puzzled when he couldn't get the key into his front door mortise lock of the ground floor flat that he shared with his 22-year-old fiance Yvonne Killian. Joseph and Yvonne had bought the flat in Cricketers Close in the northern Kent town of Erith some two years before, and by that time they'd been together for more than five years. Both were hard-working people who were working as much possible towards getting married as soon as they could afford it. To this extent, Joseph worked as many shifts as he possibly could at this local factory, whilst Yvonne had two jobs herself on top of being a student. By day, she worked as a law clerk at the Magistrates' Court in Bromley, which is a few miles south, but she also had a second job as well, doing occasional night shifts as a data clerk at the Lynx Express Depot in nearby Dirtford. She had aspirations and was training to be a solicitor. Earlier that evening, Yvonne had returned home from her working day and had had tea with Joseph before he left for his evening shift at 7pm. Yvonne was working herself that evening, and had so planned to go to bed for a few hours before Joseph would return home from his shift to give her a lift to the Lynx depot at about 1am. This was normal practice for the couple, and the evening of Friday the 13th of March 1998 was no exception. 
So Joseph had returned home to take Yvonne to work just before 1am and he tried his key in the lock but it wouldn't open because for some reason another key had been inserted into the lock from the inside and had been left there immobile. Eventually, feeling alarmed, he decided to go back outside to look through the front window of their ground floor flat, which was off to the side. He went back out through the main doorway of the block, which was controlled by an intercom and a numerical keypad where residents could key in their security code to gain access, and he made his way across to the front of the flat where the living room window was. Getting there, he noticed several lights on, even though the curtains were pulled shut, and alarmingly, the glass of one of the living room windows was smashed and the window was hanging open. Joseph ran straight over to it and pulling back the curtain was greeted with a sight of unimaginable horror. Yvonne's lifeless body was lying propped on the sofa directly in front of him as though it had been placed there for horrific effect. The t-shirt had been pulled up exposing her breasts and she was naked from the waist down, her legs having been spread wide apart. A pair of her tights were wrapped tightly around her neck and she also had extensive mutilation to her genital area and whoever had attacked, raped and strangled Yvonne had also made a crude attempt to set fire to the scene. This had been done by using vodka from a bottle that was left near to the body which had also been used to inflict the mutilation but the fire had only succeeded in as far as charring the sofa near Yvonne's head, scorching her hair and badly burning her face. Understandably, Joseph was deeply shocked, upset and horrified at this awful scene and he managed to climb through the window and cover his fiancée's body with a towel trying to preserve some of Yvonne's dignity. He then immediately contacted police and Yvonne's family. When police arrived, the area of Cricketers Close was quickly sealed off and a murder inquiry began, led by Detective Chief Inspector Chris Horn. It was the usual shebang, house-to-house -house inquiries, a detailed forensic examination of the crime scene, and interviews with the family, friends and colleagues of the couple all got underway. DCI Horn fronted an early public appeal for anyone who knew Yvonne to come forward to help the investigating team further build up a picture of her and her lifestyle to try to gain any possible motives for someone wanting to kill her and therefore a suspect. The picture that was to emerge wasn't too helpful in this aspect though because everyone spoken to painted a picture of Yvonne being busy and hard-working and an intelligent woman although one that was perhaps a little naive. She was studying part-time at Westminster Law College as well as working at the Magistrates Court and the Lynx Depot and aside from her busy life, she seemed normal and happy. Her and Joseph seemed settled, and there was nothing to indicate that either one of the couple was having an affair. But Yvonne's mother was to say that the couple were known to have frequent rows, and that Joseph could be hot-tempered. More than one person also remarked, and this was a bit unkind, I thought, really, that they thought Joseph was punching above his weight with Yvonne, and the differences between the two was remarked upon. Whereas Joseph was quiet and retiring and a stay-at-home kind of guy, quite happy to sit in, play video games and have a few beers in the house, Vaughn was outgoing and she liked dancing and she was described as the life and soul of the party. Yet despite this, as we said, neither Vaughn or Joseph was found to be having affairs and there was nothing to suggest they were anything but happy together. 
Yet one of the first steps police took was to arrest Joseph Scudder within 12 hours of the murder. This was a fairly standard procedure. He'd been the last person to have seen Yvonne alive, and there was always the possibility that this had been a domestic murder that had been staged to look like a sex killing to draw suspicion away. But it became quite apparent soon after that Joseph was just absolutely devastated and bereaved and that he was in no way responsible for Yvonne's death and therefore he could be alibied as he was at work and he could be accounted for at the time. He volunteered a blood sample so that his DNA could be checked against any forensic traces of the attacker and Joseph was released on bail pending further inquiries. The post-mortem was conducted by Dr. Dick Shepherd at St. George's Hospital in Tooting, and it determined that Yvonne had been savagely raped and subjected to oral sex before or around the time of death. Cause of death was due to strangulation, and this had first been partly from behind by the right hand of the killer, before a pair of tights were wrapped around her neck from the front to kill her. Dr. Shepherd thought it most likely that Yvonne had been killed in the bedroom of the flat and then moved to the living room and her body staged in such a horrific and degrading way. There were no defensive wounds to Yvonne of the type that she may have suffered in the course of the assault and police had to consider the possibility that at least some of the sexual activity may have been consensual. Did she indeed have a lover and was this a row with this lover that had got out of hand? This would hopefully be easily established. Semen was found on Yvonne's breast and in her mouth, and it was thought that the fire had been started to perhaps destroy this forensic evidence. It had failed to, burning out within five minutes, and there were strong hopes of being able to recover enough for a DNA sample of the killer to be obtained, based on the technology at the time. It could then be compared with those other samples on the National DNA Database belonging to convicted criminals, or it could rule out any other suspects that may come to light. A DNA sample was managed to be obtained from semen found at the scene, and it was fast-tracked against the profile taken from Joseph Scudder. It was found not to match, and he was completely eliminated as a suspect. Examinations of the crime scene provided intriguing and confusing results, although no information that could provide a definitive sequence of events. There was an empty sleeping bag found lying on the grass nearby outside the flat window, next to a fence post, which matched another nearby that was found ultimately to have been used to smash the front room window. Perhaps the strangest evidence was found outside the flat, Outside the window were two piles of human feces that were likely to have come from the killer whilst he was in the throes of excitement or nervousness, and which gave investigators, disgusting though it was, it did give them another potential source for a DNA sample to be obtained. There were no unidentified fingerprints found at the scene, but on the window itself, one of the panes of glass that was still intact did have what appeared to be a human earprint good enough to be able to take a clear impression of. Inside the flat, a vase of dried flowers had been knocked all over the hall carpet, and signs of a struggle in the bedroom appeared to tally with Dr. Shepherd's view that the murder had taken place there, with a footprint and smears of feces being found on the bed. Traces of this were also found on the living room floor, in front of several items of women's clothing that had been spread about the room, including several pairs of tights. 
not all of them belonging to Yvonne. Also strewn about the room were a number of soft porn magazines and a Valentine's card from Joseph to Yvonne, as well as Yvonne's pyjama top, which had fragments of glass from the flat window on it. Yvonne's handbag had been emptied over the floor, and her mobile phone and £40 in cash that she had in her purse had been taken, as well as a Sony PlayStation that had belonged to Joseph, along with several games. It was thought that the sleeping bag found discarded outside the flat may have been used to carry these items away at first, yet the PlayStation and games were found that same evening, just a quarter of a mile away, placed neatly underneath a tree in the churchyard at Christ Church in Erith. There'd been no apparent attempt to hide them, and how and why had they been taken and then left there? Yvonne's Motorola mobile phone was also later found abandoned on a wall nearby, and it was handed in by a member of the public, but no forensic evidence, no fingerprints or DNA traces could be gleaned from any of these items. So was this a burglary that had turned into a sex killing, or was it vice versa? Was the primary motive sex, and the thefts had been opportunistic? And if so, why had the items been dumped, and other more valuable items left in the flat? DCI Horn opted for the use of a psychological profiler in the case, thinking that aspects such as these didn't make very much sense. And as a result of his request, one of the country's foremost forensic profilers, Dr. Richard Badcock, joined the investigation. Dr. Badcock visited the crime scene and the scene where the PlayStation and games were dumped less than a quarter of a mile away, and he suggested that police were looking for an offender with good local knowledge and one that was likely to have known Yvonne in some way. He shared the view of Dr. Shepard that the murder had been committed in the bedroom and then Yvonne had been carried to the living room and placed in the specific way that she was found. He believed the body being left this way was a gesture of contempt and that the rape could either be based on an offender expressing anger or wielding power. It could have been someone already in a relationship that they found difficult or conflicting and the rape and murder of Yvonne was an expression of anger or retaliation by proxy against the partner. Dr. Badcock held the view that the offender was a possible burglar or prowler certainly a deeply disturbed sexual sadist with a history of violence, and one who'd left Yvonne posed in such a grotesque way after death, because, in a certain way, it represented something that he felt achievement at or fulfilled by. So the most likely scenario that both police and profiler arrived at was as follows. Yvonne had gotten ready for bed that evening, or was in the process of doing so after Joseph had left for work when she heard either a knock at the door or the intercom had buzzed. The killer had been prowling by the front window in the darkness and had listened against the window to make out who was home. Perhaps hearing or even seeing Yvonne was home alone, he'd managed to somehow bluff his way in through the outer door to the complex by pressing the intercom or claiming some pretense. He had then been let into the flat by the front door and had immediately savagely attacked Yvonne in the hall initially before moving her to the bedroom where she was sexually attacked and raped on the bed. It was believed that the killer had failed to climax through normal penetrative sex and in anger and frustration had turned violent and attempted both anal and oral sex instead before being able to climax through enforced oral sex 
before or just after murdering Yvonne. He had then moved her body to the front room and posed it, then left the flat by the front door, taking the items of value with him. He'd got as far as the churchyard nearby when it occurred to him that he needed to get back to destroy forensic evidence that was left and had so returned and got back in by breaking the window. The killer had then turned the key in the front door latch as a precaution and had then attempted to set fire to Yvonne's head by bundling clothes up around her neck, covering them in vodka and using this as an accelerant as traces of semen would be found in her throat. He managed to succeed in lighting the sofa around her head this way. He then left the scene again through the broken window, leaving the fire which had of course petered out in about five minutes. The faeces outside were most likely as a result of adrenaline through extreme fear or an extreme rush of excitement before or after the murder. So DCI Horn and his team obtained DNA samples from males who were connected with both Yvonne and Joseph and one by one each of these had been ruled out. It was time to consider that the murder was either committed by a complete stranger to Yvonne yet one familiar with the local area or someone whose relationship, or the extent of relationship to Yvonne, was unknown to anybody else. The DNA swabbing program that had begun was widened now to include people who were not known to be friends or acquaintances of the couple, but who lived in the area and who had come to police attention in the past for minor crimes of a sexual nature or involving violence. By the time early June had come around, nearly three months after the murder, the scientific investigations and the results of some 600 statements and countless house-to-house -house inquiries had failed to reveal the killer, and Detective Chief Inspector Horn decided to hold a press conference that featured Joseph Scudder, Yvonne's mother Audrey, and Audrey's fiancé. So the press conference idea had several prongs of attack to it, really. It was the media's first chance to interview Yvonne's family and partner. It was the chance again to appeal to anyone who knew Joseph or Yvonne to come forward. And it was the chance to announce a £5,000 reward that was put forward by the Crime Stoppers Trust for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer. The interviews with Joseph and Yvonne's family were very moving, with lots of tears being shed by each, in what was undoubtedly a difficult thing to even talk about, let alone try to come to terms with. How would you even begin to try that? But DCI Horn had another reason for the repeated appeal of anyone connected with Yvonne or Joseph. The National DNA Database had got back to him, and told him that whilst the samples removed from the crime scene of both the faeces and the semen belonged to the same man. They didn't match any of those held on the National DNA Database. Therefore, the list of people that police were now seeking fresh samples from became the main focus of attention. It was now three months into the investigation, and the 20-plus officers who were working on the case were beginning to feel frustrated, the kind of fatigue that occurs when what would seem a relatively quick-to-detect killer turns out to be a stranger murder, which are less common and bring that much more difficulty in solving, and bit by bit all lines of inquiry are actioned and followed up to no avail. They were still requesting and taking DNA samples from a list of more than 500 men who had been highlighted in the inquiry, which was a painstaking and time-consuming task, and in the backs of their minds, 
there was always the conscious possibility that this list may not include the killer at all. But on Monday the 23rd of June, there was a breakthrough. DCI Horn received a paged message asking him to contact the Birmingham Forensic Laboratory that was examining and comparing the DNA samples received. So he did so, and the senior forensic scientist there informed him that a match had just been found between the samples taken from the killer from the scene and a local 26-year-old Erith man named Carl David Sturk. It turned out that Sturk had actually been the second person to give a DNA swab following inquiries in the local area some two months before, on the 24th of April. Laboratories that carry out mass DNA testing receive a load of swabs in boxes, so they're not necessarily tested in the order from which they are taken from people on the suspect list. Some swabs even fail to produce an immediate result, and so are placed further down in the queue for a second go at a later time. So the testing had finally produced a match for someone on the list of these 500 men, but when the police went to Sturk's last known address to try to arrest him, they found that he'd given up his job as a security guard in a local glass factory and was no longer living in the Erith area. A check with his family revealed that he'd moved up to Scotland on the 9th of June to start a new life in Dundee and that he was living in a small hotel run by his stepfather's brother. So the following day, DCI Horn and colleagues flew up to Dundee and arrested Sturk at the hotel. He was flown back to London by plane and interviewed at Peckham Police Station in the presence of a solicitor over the next two days. Over the course of his police interviews, Sturk was to ignore questions posed to him by police, stare at the desk and avoid any eye contact when questioned, and he would retreat into himself when he was asked difficult questions about things, such as how to explain his DNA match to the scene of Yvonne's murder. Sturk had voluntarily given a mouth-swab DNA sample early on in the inquiry, yet when confronted with the fact that it was his DNA found at the scene in both the faeces and the semen found on Yvonne, he denied categorically having anything to do with it. He claimed not even to know Yvonne or Joseph, but a sample of his DNA was again taken following his arrest. It again proved to be an exact match to the samples taken from the crime scene. Following two days of interviews, Carl David Sturk was charged with the rape and murder of Yvonne Killian and was remanded in custody to await trial. A native of South East London, Sturk had first come to police attention more than ten years before when as a maladjusted teenager from a broken home, he was convicted at juvenile courts in Sussex, Suffolk and Bexley Heath after being caught committing a burglary and several acts of arson. A few years later, in November 1989, there was a particularly disturbing crime, when on separate occasions in the same week, two women in their twenties were approached in isolated parts of Bexley Heath by a young man, who without warning and even saying a word to them, took out a knife and slashed their throats. The attacker then ran away in each case. Although each wound was severe, Neither was fatal, and from descriptions given to police from the victims, they were able to identify Carl David Sturk, who was just 16 years old at the time, and was wanted as a suspect in further acts of arson. When Sturk was caught, police had found the knife used in the attacks hidden in the lining of his coat, 
and he was arrested and remanded in custody awaiting trial. He was convicted at Croydon Crown Court in 1991 of unlawful wounding and was sentenced to eight years in custody, but he was released in 1995. Shortly after his release from sentence for this crime, he began a relationship with a woman named Karen Taylor, who was a few years older than him, and he began working in a local glass factory, as well as window cleaning. Karen and Sturk had lived together in a flat in Maximfeld Road, a residential street which backed onto Cricketers Close, and the flat that Yvonne Killian and Joseph Scudder had lived in. But Sturk and Karen's relationship had run its course by February 1998, and Sturk had moved back into his parents' house. He was deeply upset and angry by the breakup, and shortly after the couple had split up, Karen had damage done to her car, and a wedge was fixed to the doorbell of the flat one night by someone who had done it to make the doorbell sound continuously. Karen had assumed that it was Sturk that was responsible for these acts, and as a result had had the locks changed on the property. Now I can only imagine how frightening something like that must be. I've never been the victim of stalking personally myself, but I have read up extensively on various reported cases of it, and it's obvious just how much it can affect someone. Little things such as sending unwanted takeaways to a person's address and giving silent phone calls soon develop from being a nuisance and annoying to becoming alarming and upsetting, and I can quite clearly see how something like that makes people's lives a misery. Stalking's hard to define fully because there are multiple and different methods that a stalker can use to harass their victim, and when looking into the legal definitions of it, I was quite amazed to learn that stalking was only added to the criminal statute book in 2012. Thankfully it's taken a lot more seriously nowadays than it once was, and stalking itself now carries a maximum custodial sentence of 10 years. Stay tuned for a future episode of the regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast that will examine some more cases of stalking. Police were to record several interviews with Karen Taylor, Sturk's former partner, and in these she was to describe several events that suggested that Sturk was, at the very least, a potential rapist. She described at one time, fairly early on in their relationship, that she'd found a carrier bag filled with damp women's underwear that she thought had been stolen from a washing line. Not long afterwards, she'd found a kitchen knife under the couple's bed. It wasn't one from their own kitchen, and when she'd asked Sturk about it, he denied that he'd put it there. She'd found a pair of tights in his pocket once, and when confronted with these, he claimed to have taken them so he could feel closer to her. Now these things alone, I'm sure, would have been enough to make many people think, mm, yeah, not really convinced this is the bloke I want to be with, who is this guy? Yet Karen was time after time apparently assuaged by these denials. Okay, so get this one then. Karen's statements continue to say that so many things like the aforementioned had happened and the relationship had deteriorated to the point that Karen had become concerned that Sturk might be out attacking women at night. She'd gone through his clothing and on one occasion had found gloves with lipstick marks on them as though they'd been pressed over a woman's mouth. Yet again Sturk was to just deny this when he was confronted and on another occasion after this, Karen was travelling home by car when she saw Sturk walking along a pathway following a woman. He was dressed entirely in black, 
and had a black hat on despite it being relatively warm. Karen was concerned for the woman's safety and had got out of the car and called to Sturk. After all, he was still her boyfriend at the time, but he'd ignored her, even though the woman he was following had heard Karen shout and had turned around. Extracts from Karen's statement say, I caught up with him, but he didn't want to speak to me. I think he was shocked that I was there. I mean, he could only deny things like this so often, and eventually, as she was tired of his behaviour and not trusting him at all, this was when Karen had ended their relationship in February 1998. Very wisely too, in my opinion. She also revealed to police that when they were together, Sturk had liked her to keep her tights on when they had sex, and had massively enjoyed ripping them to penetrate her, something that connected very obviously with the manner and the scene of Yvonne's murder. He'd never been reported as being violent towards Karen, although he did have a voracious sex drive and he was quite possessive towards her. It was not lost on police either just how similar Yvonne and Karen were in appearance. Although Karen was slightly older than Yvonne, they looked very, very much alike. Ahead of Sturk's trial, Yvonne's mother spoke of how she felt about the impending hearing. What I would want to come out of it at the end if he's found guilty is the death penalty, because without it justice would never be done as far as I'm concerned. You might think it's a bit barbaric, but there are far too many of these murderers of children or innocent people, and the majority of them are let out after a while. He's a nasty person, a psychopath I'd say, because of the things that he did to her. No normal person could do to her what he did, because normal people value life. He's evil, just evil. I wouldn't say he's sick or something, he's just evil. Because it's a life for a life, I would burn him alive and it would never be enough. I know it sounds cruel, but it's justifiable because of what he did to her. I lost their dad and it was very hard, it was terrible. When you lose your other half, half of you is gone. But with a child, the whole of you is gone. It's very difficult, very hard to pick up the pieces. Powerful words, eh? Carl Sturck's trial for the rape and murder of Yvonne Killian began at the Old Bailey on the 11th of January 1999, where he entered a plea of not guilty. In the months preceding the trial, new forensic evidence had emerged that further placed Sturck at the scene. The garden fence post that had been used to break the front window of the flat was found to contain fibres that matched a pair of gloves and a black Arsenal hat belonging to Sturck that had been found at the home of Sturck's parents. The earprint found on the glass pane of the front window was found to be a perfect match for Carl Sturck, who had now also changed his story for his defence case by now. Where he had once denied all knowledge of Yvonne throughout his many police interviews, and he denied that it was his DNA at the scene, he'd now adapted a story where he claimed he was having an affair with Yvonne, and they'd had consensual sex on the evening that she was murdered, and that she must have been killed by someone else after he'd left her. Prosecuting counsel David Walters QC laid out the evidence before the jury, where they were to hear testimony from Yvonne's family, police officers, the pathologist and forensic scientists as to the findings at the crime scene and the manner in which Yvonne met her death. It was not confirmed ever that Yvonne knew him, but Sturk's route to work was right past the flat that Yvonne and Joseph shared, and it was likely he knew her or had become aware of her in passing. 
Witnesses gave evidence at the trial claiming that Sturk had stalked Yvonne for a period of time before the murder. There was talk of him hanging around alleyways nearby watching a flat and he was seen on occasion following Yvonne to venues including the local swimming pool. Evidence was also given that Sturk had remarked to friends a story about finding a PlayStation in the Christchurch yard, that he'd left it there, then decided to go back and get it, but it had gone. Again, police had not made this detail public at the time Sturk had told this story to his friends, and that's a strange enough story that would stick clearly in anyone's mind, wouldn't it? Sturk himself was to go into the witness box where he was to deny stalking Yvonne and he claimed that they'd met her a couple of months before at a Christmas party, that there'd been a mutual attraction between them and the couple had begun an affair. Sturk claimed that he'd been around to the flat at least on ten separate occasions, usually on a Tuesday and Wednesday, sometimes on a Friday as well, and obscenely he claimed that Yvonne had referred to him as her treat of the week. He went on to say that on the evening of the murder, he'd been around to the flat once Joseph Scudder had left for work, and he and Yvonne had consensual sex. Together, they had then hatched a plot to get back at Joseph, although Sturk declined to say what deed any retribution was for, but the goal was to gain some insurance money from a claim. Sturk claimed that the plan was for him to break the window of the flat with a fence post to make it look like a burglary, then take the PlayStation and games and stash them in the churchyard for collection later on. So he'd done this and then had left Yvonne alive and well and had headed home to get changed to go to work on his evening shift at the factory where he worked. By claiming this as his story, this again pointed the finger of suspicion at Joseph Scudder, who again categorically denied the allegation. He pointed out, somewhat emotional, that he had been investigated by police who had considered him to be the prime suspect at first, and he'd been rapidly ruled out. The strain that Yvonne's murder had placed upon him was evident when he was asked about the allegation of him having killed her shortly afterwards, Joseph saying, The final question he asked, if I murdered her, well I just couldn't believe it. I answered it a bit louder than the other questions because I never did it and I couldn't see the point of being asked it. People I spoke to afterwards were shocked. People in the gallery who were watching couldn't believe that they actually asked me that. I just wanted to come to an end and get some answers. For the last couple of weeks I've had sleepless nights and been agitated. It's not always easy because it's always there. It's in the papers and people come up and ask you about it, talk to you about it. I don't particularly hate anyone, but in this case I hate the person who's done this, destroyed a young girl's life, and in the process destroyed a load of other people related to her and her friends. I still miss her, I remember the good times and the bad. After a 17-day trial, the jury retired to consider their verdict. Taking into account the forensic evidence and the DNA samples from the scene belonging to Sturk, plus his unlikely story for his defence. It took the jury less than four hours' deliberation to reach a verdict. They returned to the courtroom to deliver a unanimous verdict of guilty on the charges of rape and murder, and Carl David Sturk stood impassive in the dock as Mr Justice Grigson sentenced him to the mandatory term of life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 20 years. It was remarked upon how despicable and terrible his offence was, 
and that in the view of Mr. Justice Grigson, Sturk would always be a terrible danger to women. He was then taken down to begin his sentence. Outside on the steps of the Old Bailey, Detective Chief Inspector Horn told assembled press how pleased he was with the result, saying, Carl Sturk was caught as a direct result of intelligence-led policing, which is a policy that goes on throughout the Metropolitan Police today. I agree wholeheartedly with the judge's comments that he is an extremely dangerous man and a threat to women, and I'm delighted we've been able to take him off the streets of London. Yvonne's family echoed this, with his sister Mandy saying, Yvonne would have been proud because the law was her career. She'll always be in our memory. I'll never forgive that man for the way he tried to slur her character. It was unforgivable what he tried to do in court. That scum deserves to be where he is now. Even right up to the end he was smirking. Following Sturk's conviction, Dr Richard Badcock gave his view that Sturk was a severely damaged and psychologically limited person, although one who was capable of maintaining at least a pretense of normal life. He could hold down a job and had managed to keep his relationship with Karen going for a couple of years. Yet whilst doing this, Badcock believed that Sturk was unable to prevent himself from doing things such as stealing underwear and prowling about at night following women. It made him feel powerful. When Karen had broken off the relationship, he likely fixated upon Yvonne because she looked like Karen and was of a similar ilk, independent and hard-working. Dr. Badcock believed that Sturk's intention had been to rape Yvonne that evening, but it had gone way beyond that, that he'd strangled Yvonne with a pair of tights. Tights that belonged to Karen. Dr. Badcock believed that Sturk had returned to the flat partly to destroy forensic evidence, but also to stage the body in that way. He said, I don't think he was trying to destroy all of the evidence of what he'd done in the flat, because I strongly suspect that what he'd done represented his finest achievement to date. In other words, if not pleased with what he'd done or proud of it, I think he was satisfied with what he'd done. Not necessarily that he liked it or he gained pleasure from it, but that he felt fulfilled by having done it. Fulfilled, bloody hell, how does rape and murder fulfil a person? Other people run marathons, do jigsaws, even run a popular true crime podcast and get fulfilment from that. I cannot even begin to imagine the type of person that feels fulfilment from rape and murder. I just really can't. Carl Sturk's appeal was turned down by the Court of Appeal in October 1999 and he was returned to continue his sentence. He's been interviewed by police on a number of occasions since in an attempt to ascertain any culpability that Sturk may have in other unsolved sex crimes and murders in the area, but he's never admitted anything and has continued to give his version of events of the evening of Friday the 13th of January 1998 as what happened as he'd presented in his defence. His minimum tariff is up next year and he'll be able to seek his freedom then. Now I have no doubt in my mind that Carl Sturk is responsible for other sex crimes. I don't think he would have been able to help himself. Look at the statements from Karen Taylor. His own girlfriend suspected him of going out attacking women, and had found a pair of gloves with lipstick marks on them. Now put that together with someone who likes prowling around dressed all in black, prowling about at night, and you'd be suspect of someone like that, right? Now put it together with a disturbed youth 
who slashes the throats of two women aged just 16 years old and then goes on to commit a horrific and sadistic rape and murder nine years later. So he had a prison sentence of four years in between that, but that still leaves him a few years out on the lam, leaving ample time free to commit crimes, and I don't believe a predator such as Sturk could keep any urges suppressed throughout that time, regardless of how much he could act at having a normal life. As someone with a previous conviction and living in such close proximity to Yvonne, Sturk would have come to the suspect list through intelligence, and his consent to give a DNA sample when he was approached to, which by rights he could have refused, was probably given because he felt secure in the fact that his previous conviction had come before the inception of the National DNA Database, and he mistakenly suspected that the fire he'd set had destroyed any forensic evidence that linked him to the crime. I think police should certainly look at him as a person of interest in other unsolved sex crimes from the area, whilst he was at large following his release from prison, and as well as a possible person of interest in a still unsolved murder from October 1995, the rape and murder in a Walthamstow, North East London home of retired primary school teacher Joy Hewer. Now I covered Joy's case in a post on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog in October 2016, so a full account of Joy's case can be found there for those who are interested in reading up on it. So what do you think then all? Is it possible that Sturk is responsible for other crimes? And if he is released imminently, or perhaps he's already been released, has his prison sentence rehabilitated him, or is he a ticking time bomb ready to be, or already released into the community, and he will attack again? I hope that you found this bonus Patreon episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast both interesting and informative. I know they're always a bit shorter than the regular episodes, but I firmly believe that an episode is as long as it needs to be, and I hope Yvonne's story has already been told well enough here. It's of course an unfamiliar case, and it's one with relatively little available easy to research, but if you do a bit of digging, and you have an extensive library like me luckily, and there we go. Thank you so much for joining me all. I'm back on the regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast show each Thursday. And of course, the first of every month with another bonus Patreon episode for all you very kind supporters. This is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, saying take care guys, be safe, and I shall speak to you all soon. Thanks very much, and goodbye for now.